Hello and welcome back to The MCU Need to Know, a podcast dedicated to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything you need to know. I'm Trey. I'm Jude. How you doing, Trey? I'm doing really well. We uh, we have officially launched in the real time of this recording of the podcast, and I am genuinely excited with the reception that we've gotten so far. Yes, I'm really pleased with the reception. I'm not sure what I was exactly expecting. Um mm-hmm. And I think just the fact that we got some listens and downloads was great. Um, but it's it's beyond my expectations, honestly. Yeah, listens, downloads, and I mean, getting actual like feedback on Twitter and uh, and our Discord and on you know social media in general. It, it was a really good feeling. It was. It, I mean, very quickly getting feedback, especially in the social medias, which was really awesome. Yeah, I do. You know, I find it funny. I I believe this is what our sixth episode now. And something that I was kind of conscious of that I've yet to articulate, I don't think we've kind of established like a spoiler policy, I guess, just because we've assumed that if you're doing this rewatch of Daredevil, like you've already watched the episode. But I think it might be important to note, like once we get to like new stuff like Black Widow or Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, I think we'll have like clearly defined areas of, okay, this is our non-spoiler thoughts and then we'll jump into spoiler stuff. Yeah, I'd hope by this point you've seen Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you haven't, pause now yeah because we're not doing it just <laughs> go watch it and come back yeah you know it's it's very funny that thin line between discussion shows where if you haven't watched the episodes all we're really doing is just spoiling it for you <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i just wanted to I, I got a little conscious about that as i was listening to the episode now that people are consuming it so i you know that that'll be our policy moving forward and i guess it's safe to assume whenever we're referencing any of the other previous mcu stuff i guess everything up to spider-man far from home is fair game i think that's fair yeah definitely wanted to uh well, get I that what, now that now they got it officially launched and people listening i must say every time i listen i feel very self-conscious about hearing my dog in the background start barking <laughs> <laughs> from recording this at home listen so. i you know it feels like it. The, the pets of the podcast always become the unofficial mascot. So, hey, we've got ours now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, My wife will be pleased. <laughs> but, of course, we are here to discuss episode five of Daredevil, which is entitled World on Fire. This episode opens up with the aftermath of Claire being rescued in the previous episode, where she is kind of overlooking her cuts and her bruises in the bathroom mirror. Um, after she kind of assesses what's been done to her, she does eventually exit into the kitchen where Matt is making her breakfast. Something we've mentioned on previous uh, podcast uh, was that flirty element mm-hmm. from Claire to Matt. This scene has a lot of that, you know, that lawyer by day, vigilante by night, how does that work kind of banter. You know, she makes some quip about looking into a billionaire playboy and clearly that's well i thought batman mcu wise i guess that's stark but i thought batman see you know i you mentioned batman i wanted to think that was a stark reference but i was like no i'm gonna pull it back i'm not gonna keep jumping at everything thinking it's a reference right but yeah i I want to believe batman (laughs) playing off of you said yeah last week we did see there's a lot of playful banter as they were flirting back and forth and i mean in this opening scene we we see them kind of take that next step as they uh embrace right at that moment i don't know if you caught it there was an editing mistake really yeah okay so they they have the their moment a kiss and the camera is 
looking over his right shoulder. Uh, it's kind of tight. He has his hand, his right hand up on her neck and his left hand up on her shoulder. And then the cut, all it did is move the camera basically crosses the 180 degree line. And now it's looking at over Matt's left shoulder. And so it's, it was kind of jarring because when it's over his right shoulder, Matt is on, if you're watching it, the left side of the screen looking towards the right side. But then when it switches, the cut may, puts him on the other side of the screen looking the other way. And then his hand wasn't on her neck and not on her shoulder. Uh, made me just wonder, like, what got missed in that cut? Um, or if that was just purely one of those, hey, we got to go back and get this. It didn't work. Um, I don't know why that just jumped right out to me. And part of it is because we've talked about how well planned out this mm-hmm. season and shows have been. And so to, so I to notice that, it was kind of surprised. So, yeah, obviously we could see in the previous episode they had the flirting back and forth. But I'll be completely honest. I had forgotten that they attempted a relationship this season. I, I forgot that they become paired off. Right. And I mean, to get, my, get ahead just slightly, it, it didn't go very far. No. Um, but it, you could kind of see it coming and it, and it paid off. Uh, in the dialogue in this scene, I thought there was some kind of homages to that same theme, this that duality. But the majority of it, uh, to me, was just kind of trying to figure out what they want to do with their relationship. Mm-hmm. I do find it interesting that in this scene, we also get, I think for the first time, plainly stated how exactly Matt's powers work. Um, and I, I'm going to... I'll. Be completely honest, I know this is a bit of a stretch, but I think one of the things that Marvel's always tried to do in the MCU is kind of ground their stuff in reality, which I say that knowing full well that there is a talking tree and raccoon, but they do still try and ground it. And, you know, Matt describes how he has vibrations in the air or the the shifting of, like he says, her bones, like he can hear those. And whenever he combines all those heightened senses, he gets kind of this impressionistic painting of the world. I liked the use of that phrase here. Uh, and the title of the episode, World on Fire. And you get to have that look like through his eyes. Um, I wish they would have done that more and throughout this episode. Um, now, now that you kind of established that, that that's his view. I don't know if that, that might've taken away from a kind of the realism or realistic look or feel of the show. To me, I thought like, if you're going to show it, you're going to name the the episode this um at least from the daredevil side let's mm-hmm. see it a little bit more yeah i really like that between our two main protagonists antagonists fisk and and matt we've both gotten sort of their worldviews through paintings obviously with fisk we had the rabbit in a snowstorm and we got to hear how that makes him feel lonely it's really cool that a couple episodes later he were here with Matt and he's talking about his quote unquote painting as being a world on fire. And even though, like you said, it kind of looked unrealistic, it's it kind of gives that I don't know if harrowing is the right word, but you, you feel for what Matt's quote unquote seeing. Yes. It, it's very illuminating as his character. Yes. Well, and Claire had that line. The well, if I saw everything as fire or saw every the world on fire, I'd want to hit people too. Yeah. And and you get clearly they're setting up the two of them as I was going to say opposites, but that's not right. They're setting them up as the same person um, going in different directions. It's almost like a like social experiments to see how two different people are tackling the same problems and the way that they're going about it. 
Right. And I mean, I think we'll find that as we get further down the line and we like in terms of moving on to some uh, movies, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see similar ideas between, you know, protagonist and antagonist. So after that scene with Claire and Matt, we do immediately switch scenes to Vladimir, who is concerned about the location of his brother. Uh, Wesley quickly enters the scene and he feigns as though he has no idea what's going on. And then, of course, Sergei uh, alerts Vladimir that they have found Anatoly's body. I loved the look on Wesley's face when Vladimir paused or not really paused, but started to say Mr. Fisk and stopped himself. Like Wesley was so pleased that he's yeah. like, I've won. And I got it's, you. It, man, it's heartbreaking to see that, you know, Vladimir was willing to set things aside because he knew how much it meant for his brother. And obviously we know what happened. It's, it feels weird to say heartbreaking because I know that these are criminals, but you can you can kind of see the how much Vladimir's trying for the sake of the relationship between him and his brother. Yeah, clearly it's and we saw from the last episode where spending a significant amount of time with them. Uh, that the, their relationship as brothers is what really drove them to do what they're, what they're doing. Even, even criminal activity was to help each other out, help the family. And, and one of the things that we learn in this scene as well is as Vladimir is, is investigating the body, he pulls out the black mask. And I like how Wesley kind of just threw in that sly, man in the black mask like almost (laughs) for those who aren't looking just basically saying hey pay attention to this right uh but it's cool it's cool that they they're framing daredevil for this i like that that's the direction this is going right and you got a sense where wesley glanced at uh what's his name starts with an s uh sergey 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 well and he had this glance He, he it's like he wanted to check and make sure they bought it um, and I, I like that little extra bit. Um, and I know we mentioned his name, the actor who's playing Wesley. He just, the little extra stuff he's doing with his facial expressions are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Very. Yeah, episode MVP front runner right now. Yeah, it's clear we are definitely fanboys. <laughs> What's surprising to me is that th- I think this might be our longest pre title sequence uh, that we've had so far because they gave us a lot of information at the top. Yeah, I had the same note. I had the same note. Like, I'm taking notes, and I'm like, wow, I missed the title sequence. Yeah. After the title sequence, we do get a new scene with Madame Gal, Nobu, Leland, as they're waiting for somebody, and the SUV that we saw in the previous episode is being cleaned of all the blood and gore. Uh, Shortly, Wesley arrives, and they all start to question him, and we are caught off guard by the fact that Fisk is actually attending this meeting as well. Yes, this is the first time that we see Fisk with the group. I wanted to ask you, I get, okay, Wesley is translating when Gal speaks and when Nobu speaks, Mm -hmm. but Fisk, he understands to some degree, no? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I I thought it was interesting that Wesley has to translate for him, but he doesn't have to translate back to to Gal or Nobu. Like they understand as well. So I, it was a little bit of a confusion on my point, trying to point or pinpoint who knows what. And to add to that element of trust we talked about between um, Fisk and Wesley, you notice Wesley doesn't always do a direct translation. He just sometimes says, this is what they said, or this is what, I mean, not that I know the language and know if it's a direct translation, but you can tell from what Wesley says that he's he's kind of given the cliff notes of what, sometimes, of what uh, Gao or Nobu said. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a a good level of trust that they that Fisk understands Wesley will give him the pertinent details. Honestly, the thing that I kind of took away from this scene is it's an amazing trick that they're able to pull where Fisk is still in command of the scene. Like as the moment he walks in, I mean, it's, you can feel the intensity, but I also feel like they're all still in the same playing field. Like none of them, like the way that Leland feels comfortable taking jabs at Fisk or that Madame Gal is clearly upset with the direction, the unilateral direction that Fisk took by taking out the Russians it makes them feel like a functioning group that they're all have equal weight. Yeah, it does. But notice nobody questioned when Fisk said his personal matters as to why he did what he did in taking off Anatoly's head. No one questioned that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, okay. Fisk let it's personal. They let it go. Um, I, I mean, you can take that in one or two ways, I guess. I, uh, you can take it as in the sense of they're all on the same level, you know, a sense of respect, I kind of saw it as like he still kind of had control of the group. Mm-hmm. Not kind of, he had control of the group. I'd imagine seeing the bloody SUV does have a part in that. <laughs> so Wesley, I mean, it was Fist that actually, Fist said who it was. Wesley was did say, you know, it's none of your concern or something when Leland asked about it, right? Right. So, I mean, just because I'm thinking it through, I mean, not only is the first time we see we- uh, Fisk with the group, um, it, Fisk has become more open in, mm-hmm. in that way, too. You know, and, and more that gets illuminated on Fisk, I believe it's Leland at a certain point where Fisk is detailing, like, you know, after after the Russians gone, I will assume their operations. And Leland has a quip that kind of sounds something like, oh, and I'm assuming their shares will just get moved over to the ledger in your column, right? And there's a hesitation, I think, on Fisk part where I think at least I read it as though that he's kind of just composing himself. But he he res- he responds, a rising tide raises all ships. The shares will be divided equally. I like that we kind of see that this is more than just money or power for Fisk. He really does have an old ultimate end goal in mind, and he wants to make sure that they're all getting there equally. Yes, and I also like. I mean, you alluded to it where, where, where you had the kind of that expectation, like, like Fisk had to compose himself, and I think we see that again later in this episode where they really the the showrunners, the creators, really make good choices in setting us up as an audience. Like you expect something to set him off. You know, and 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 where we have those expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because we got the ultimate set off last episode, so it's almost kind of like we're we're reeling back from his behavior. So after the meeting with Fisk, Gal, Nobu, Leland, and Wesley, we get a new scene that features the Russian gang members escorting one of Madame Gal's runners, and they begin questioning him about the man in the black mask. After he doesn't respond, they just write him off and they arrive at their location. And we get uh, another one-take scene here in the Daredevil series. I really love that sequence where they put us in the 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 back seat, basically, with, the, with Gal's runner. You had that 360-degree camera turn, reveals Daredevil, comes back around, and he's gone. But even though in the fight, like you were with them in the back seat, you know, you you hear the fight, you see the fight. I mean, well, you see the fight through the windshield, but the majority of it is sound, mm-hmm. and that doesn't end. I mean, you are that person, and that doesn't end until you get the you know the back of his head blown off. 
and then and then we get the cutaway and back to w- what we're used to uh in terms of the choreography or how the choreography is shot it really is amazing how creative this team this daredevil creative team is with the ways that they keep finding with the the way they keep finding new ways to keep the action entertaining the last time we got this one take it was we were with matt the whole time so we felt the the spectacle of the action this one the the fact that we stay with the the blind runner in the car like it heightens that tension beyond belief and kind of i like anytime i start to talk about tension i always kind of conjure that imagery of just like winding something up and the fact that the camera's doing that 360 turn the whole time like we actually physically feel like we're being wound up until the release of him getting shot in the back which that at first my first read on this is like well that felt a little short, but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it because we're abruptly ended with the one take that much like, unfortunately, uh, the, the, the man's life was ended in that scene. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, we're in his head, his head gets blown off and we're no longer there. (laughs) (laughs) I think you could tell where I was realizing the dark corner I painted myself in and I was desperately trying to pull the ripcord on that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think you followed me down that one too. <laughs> hey, it's <laughs> it's a job well done. Yes, well, good, good for you. Pat, pat on the back. Uh, <laughs> so, but now, I mean, right here, right away, we already get the ramifications of um, Daredevil being framed, right? Because like he he starts doing his usual bit, tell me a name, or I don't remember what he wanted at this time. Uh, and the Russian he had immediately says, I'll tell you what you want. Just don't cut my head off, you know? Um, and so very quickly the words gotten around. Um, and it's not, you don't see it as much in this scene, but you do know, or you already get the sense that mm-hmm. Daredevil is going to play into it. It is interesting the way we get to see Matt discover this perception of him and how he continues to use that as the episode goes on. Mm-hmm. But after the scuffle with Matt and the Russians, we are back at the Nelson and Murdoch offices where Karen is having some issues with the copier. Foggy arrives, and shortly after, so does Matt, and they have some playful banter back and forth before we get another client of the Nelson and Murdoch law firm, Mrs. Cardenas. Yes, looking for Senor Foggy Law. I do have a question. When I couldn't tell with the equipment, if they were trying to make it look like the equipment was faulty when Foggy was talking about the phones or were they trying to allude to their phones being tapped? Cause he said, all I can hear on the phones is the clicking. Huh? Well, if that was the case, then I didn't get the whole um, phones being tapped thing, but that's an interesting thought. You know, I, I think one of the things I was feeling guilty about earlier when we were talking about the, the playboy line and how it might be a reference to Tony Stark, where my mind was with the f- faulty equipment is Foggy has a line, something like, oh, you know, don't say it too loud for when the overlords attack. I, come, I, I wanted to stretch that into an Ultron reference, but I don't think that's actually the case. No, I don't think so. Uh, be nice. <laughs> so I, I found that interesting, the bat, the, that whole back and forth, Mrs. Cardenas, the reveal to Karen that Matt can speak Spanish and his line about mm-hmm. your voice is soothing to me. I don't know. I've I, in my two watches, I went, I could went either way. One time, I thought, okay, he's hitting on her, and another time, no, it might just be that's the case. I wasn't sure how I wanted 
to read that. Uh, but I did like that they really reinforced how the practice is about helping mm-hmm. those who need it most. Oh, yeah. On To play off that last part, you know, it, it is nice that we're kind of really this is setting up plot lines for Foggy as we see how those play out. Because up until this point, he really hasn't had a lot to do. Uh, he's been in a couple like side plots here and there, but we're we're getting to see the lawyer side of Foggy in full action here. Right. And this is their first legitimate case, right? Well, I mean, they had Karen. And right. And then they had Mr. Healy. Mr. Healy. Yeah. But this is the first one that it was, it walked in the door and it's not this, you're set up by Union Allied or this weird murder framing you know, so this is our first just and if any, random case. If anything, it's off the back of their own doing because we find out that Mahoney's mom is the one who tipped off Mrs. Cardenas after the bribe of the cigar. So, yeah. this Yeah, bribing cops. Bribe, bribing cops works. Yeah, right? As we find out in this episode. So, yeah, it, it is, it's completely devoid of anything else. So, it, it's pure foggy plot line, which I think is, is much needed for him. But I did want to point out, you know... Because you you brought up how uncomfortable the flir- the original flirting with Foggy yeah. and Karen was. It, that was something I didn't catch on my first watch. But after you put it into perspective about the whole um, office work dynamic, it this scene from Matt really, I don't know, it just seemed completely out of place. Um, I couldn't tell, like you said, if he's hitting on her or if it's something that's true. Either way, it's a weird comment, and I think, honestly, it's only done to set up the way Foggy differentiates himself from Matt and, and Matt's relationship to women later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I I wasn't a fan of it. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't tell. I mean, outside of traditionally Karen Page as a Matt Murdock love interest, you know, and I think even originally when she's first introduced, there was a little bit of love interest for Matt and possibly foggy, but over the course of time, it was pretty much, you know, Karen page and Matt. Um, and so I guess there's a little bit of that. Maybe also trying to play into it. It just, it, it just felt like you said clunky and just not well done, uh, or, or yeah. could have done it in better ways. Which It's just weird that they chose to do that moment in the middle of a client's yeah. interview. Yes. That, that was just really weird. So in the next scene, after we get introduced to Mrs. Cardenas' plight, we find ourselves in the police station where Matt is doing some work to try and get as much information as they can on Armin Tully. Uh, he asks Mahoney to get any sort of complaints that they have on him. And while he's waiting for those files, he is able to use his superheroing to pick up on a investigating scene between one of the Russians that was picked up in the earlier fight. A nice touch to this scene is the placement of Matt. When he sits on the bench, there's a a poster behind him that says, you don't have to reveal your identity to solve violent crimes. And I just really liked that touch because that's just, that's what Matt's struggling with, right? Mm-hmm. That duality of what's the best way to serve justice. Um, and so to put him right in front of that, and he's using, he's there as a lawyer, but he's also using the daredevil skill uh, to get information that, to be honest, he wouldn't have had otherwise mm-hmm. and it almost kind of harkens back to that conversation that he had with the father earlier how 
I believe he kind of mentions how like it's not fair that the father can hear these confessionals and not have anything to say. And here we are again, where even though he's using a superpower, we're once again seeing the how um, oh, it's it called confidentiality. Well, yeah, the, you have so in the confession, it's called the seal of the confession, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have the attorney-client privilege. Mm-hmm. I guess is what you might be referring to. Yeah, attorney-client privilege, yeah. but I, I guess it wouldn't be called that for the investigators. But I mean, it's basically they have their their area of of, of private matters and matt's able to hear that but he still has to carry that burden on his own because it's not like he can reveal that to anybody else yeah well see there's some there's some elements with this scene that's kind of the day the showrunners took for granted that we or made some assumptions on our end <laughs> so, i mean let's be honest like and we've seen enough other shows and cop shows like if you're in there with this interrogation just in mm-hmm. case he does give a name this should have been recorded and so they didn't give us any indicated any indication that mm-hmm. There was not being recorded or anything, you know, and, and so in that sense, otherwise it normally would have been because mm-hmm. uh, it's your typical interrogation room, right? Like that's evidence if if, if they do say something. Um, so I don't know, at least in that setting, how private that conversation would have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also agree, like if it's if they weren't in there attorney-client privilege and he had his lawyer in there you're listening in on to privileged information so you get that again that that back and forth of what what are you willing to do to serve justice uh one that we might actually see is just and the other that clearly you're doing you know what Mm. in theory i'll say needs to be done to, to get stuff done. You know, I will say this. It does shed some light on these two detectives, Blake and Hoffman, why they were so cruddy to Matt and Foggy in the beginning. I completely forgot that they were on Fisk payroll. Did you remember that at the time when we discussed that scene earlier? I didn't remember it, but I just assumed, actually. Because mm-hmm. uh, to me, it just that interaction I just assume that they're establishing, okay, this one is a dirty cop. I don't think I thought that of both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one clearly where he's like, I don't care if you're blind, I'll kick your ass. And just, oh, there's our dirty cop. You know, and mm-hmm. that was something I know I thought, but I didn't remember um, the the sequence here or, the, or what the next sequence later we see with him. Yeah. I was like, okay, everything's starting to fall in line for these two guys. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I like I like the playfulness of it too, where they were like, all right, whose turn is it? And he's like, you. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Wait, I did that thing at the bodega. Now it's your turn. He's like, okay. And it, it's funny how it's like, it shouldn't be funny because of the seriousness of it, but how flippant they are about well, yeah, and hiding. I was going to say, and it feels like that they um, have done this a number of times. It was very casual. Yeah. Too casual for comfort. Well, too, too casual for comfort. And I thought, I have a note. I thought it was a little sloppy. How so? When you think, I mean, it's just the two of them. It's their word, right? But when you start thinking about, you know, a level of realism they want out of this show and where he was standing to be punched, you got to get that guy's fingerprints mm-hmm. on the gun. Like, if you really want to frame this guy, you have very little time to set up the scene right? after shooting this guy because you're in the police station. The police came running. You know, and and so in that sense, I was like, eh, you guys, you guys are getting a little sloppy on the job doing this or, <laughs> or you have no fear because so many other police are on the take. One of the two. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Well, and, and it's stuff that depending on the show, right, there's an expectation that you just kind of forgive as an audience. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but when they're trying to create and have you buy into a relatively realistic look, yeah, that I thought that that was a little sloppy on their part. So after the scene in the precinct, we do find ourselves back with Karen and Foggy as they arrive at Lamon and Zach, uh, where they run into Armin Tully's lawyer, who goes by the name of Marcy Stahl. Right off the bat, honestly, Marcy is like inhumanly off-putting, almost to the point that it kind of it kind of feels like she's a caricature of of a person. Yeah, they had a particular stereotype in mind, and they really I, I think they hit, I think they nailed it actually. This high-priced law firm. You look at the building, high heels, dressed blonde. I mean, you know, I, as filmmakers, creators, you know, there's this push and pull with um, stereotypes. In some ways, it's very problematic, but in some ways, you give the viewers a lot of information very quickly mm-hmm. in utilizing stereotypes. And, and I think this is actually a case where they did a good job with that. And the fact that she's so interwoven into Foggy's history, I think they're doing a really good job narratively of of, of distinguishing what he was leaving from Landman and Zach to kind of start his own practice with wanting to help the little people. Oh, yeah. He's helping the little people. You get the rich people and they're kind of overbearing, like she controlled the scene. Um, but I think very quickly we got to see how good Foggy was or no, how how good Foggy is when he turned the tables. Oh, yeah, because the, the power immediately shifts once he starts to detail all the ways that he that they actually have the leverage over her client after she was kind of just trying to scare them into to taking the deal. I have a question, though. Do you think it went a little too far once Foggy started getting insulting of her actual character? Because I, I was like, this is really cool. I like how they're showing Foggy kind of shifting in that power dynamic. But I thought him kind of taking cheap shots at her kind of took away from the scene for me. Um, um, I'm not sure. And, and only because like she this is a business meeting and she's calling him Foggy Bear. Right. And mm-hmm. so they've established that they they know each other beyond Hey, nice to meet you kind of, kind of things. Mm -hmm. And it's this, yeah, as they're walking away, this is where he mentions to Karen that they used to date. So I think because of that level of history, like if, Mm -hmm. like if they weren't dating and she wasn't calling him foggy bear, the, so you have a really good sense that they know each other well, Mm -hmm. um, then I'd agree with you, you know, but I, I think that's why I don't, I didn't find it as, as, as pushing it too far. In, in this okay. instance, and only because they, I feel like they did a good job establishing a past relationship between them. The way that you, you're talking about how she's calling Foggy Bear, I mean, there's already an air of informality to it. And Foggy already tried once to kind of make things formal by saying they were going to go up to an office. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. This would be over before the elevator finished kind of thing. So I guess and it's kind of deservedly so that that she took it from an inform from a formal place into an informal area where foggy kind of takes his shots. Right. One of the things I found it weird about this scene. And again, this is just creative choice. Like I felt like, yes. And, and I, and I just mentioned the love interest of Karen and Matt. I felt like part of the purpose of this scene and Karen going with foggy was kind of to push Karen in the direction of foggy love interest wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even have a note that says, Despite the, you know, I have a note, despite the comic in this show, Karen actually fit pairs better with Foggy at this point. Oh, yeah. They're definitely doing a lot of work to kind of sort of service that plot line uh, in this episode alone, not to mention the the stuff that they tried in episode two. 
Right. So it's I'm and I find it interesting the way the tables turned very quickly, even in this episode, away from that when it was just set up so well and, the, and they do play off mm-hmm. each other very well. So after we take a visit to Lamin and Zach, we do find ourselves back in the familiar setting of the SUV with Wesley and Fisk as they're detailing their day. We hear that Fisk is worried about the fact that the Russian knew his name in the interrogation scene earlier, and Wesley does his best to assure him that it's okay. Right, and I like I like the callback here, um, where he rec- recommends uh, a particular wine that I'm not going to try to say because I butchered it off podcast. So I'm not going to do it on podcast. I'm going to swing for the fences. Go ahead. Okay, here we go. Seventy five Brunello de Montecino. <laughs> There you go. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I'm going with that. <laughs> you know, but I just, I liked that call because, because we even talked about it. You had that, the, the line where uh, Vanessa kind of poked a joke and we were like, oh, Chris doesn't have much of a sense of humor. Um, and, and they kind of bring back of like Wesley is calling the shots on the wine. Um, you know, and I, I just like that little moment there. Yeah. And I mean, kind of we've been keeping track on this uh, in prior episodes. This scene opens up with Fisk kind of fidgeting with his cufflinks again. So that was another thing to kind of keep tabs on because we actually get some more light shed on that this episode, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I will I will say this because I think we we both kind of had some off podcast thoughts about this episode. I think one of the things that we ran into is that this we felt like this episode jumped around a lot. Uh, and as we move forward, I think this is kind of like the start of the episode doing a lot of those jumps. Oh um, yeah. Like, cause very quickly we're already like, I'll be honest. I, I don't have a whole lot of notes on the scene because we're very quickly with foggy and Karen showing up at the apartment with Miss Cardenas. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that whole scene where they first show up, they're seeing all the damage that was caused by Tully's men. We have a call, another callback to, Foggy's cousin, the drywall guy, is, is Foggy offers to fix it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really uh, not just Cardenas's, but I think everybody's in the apartment in the apartment complex. He offered to fix. Yeah, I mean, it really is a nice continuation of that prior scene in episode two, where we said, you know, Foggy's being this metaphorical defender of the city. Here we get to see him be it on a more literal, hands-on way, where he's pulling his connections, like you said, with his cousin, or actually actively helping out. Uh, with some of these repairs, which I do find funny that uh, we're, we're almost getting this uh, baton pass of volunteering work for each other. In the beginning, Matt volunteered Foggy to go talk to the lawyers, and now Foggy's volunteering Karen into helping fix this place. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it also <laughs> it also kind of reinforces the last time, I think, well, not the last time, but the, let's see, it was episode two where Foggy and Karen spent the majority of the time together. And one of the things that they talked about was how much they loved the city. And here it really shows, you know, their love of the city um, and, and the people of the city is they're going to get, they're going to roll their sleeves up and do some work. And, and later on, I, I kind of tease it now, but later on we get a scene where, you know, Mrs. Cardenia pretty much flat out says that sentiment uh, word for word. And, I, I I like what they're doing here with the apartment, Cardenas and Karen and Foggy. Yeah. Yeah. So after our short little pit stop with Mrs. Cardenas and Foggy and Karen, we do find ourselves back with Daredevil who corners 
Detective Blake, who was one of the investigators that staged the shooting in the precinct, and Matt begins to interrogate him for more information. Yeah, so, and we get right here, I think in this, Detective Blake here makes some comment about, we know what you like to do, talking about decapitating Anatoly, and Matt outright says, yes, (laughs) you know, and and really owned up to it, I mean, despite not doing that. Um, But what I found interesting is right towards the end of that scene, where Matt's asking the questions and you get this sense of there's really something bigger going on Matt hasn't tapped into yet, you know, because he says, well, hey, if you don't know this and you're dumber than you look, or you're dumber than you sound. Right. Um, and it, I mean, it's funny, too, because we, we go from seeing him being quick on his feet to use that perception of him being this decapitator and then showing just how little he actually knows when the when Detective Blake is able to kind of take that cheap shot at him again. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting because we've been revolving around this question of does Daredevil have this no killing code um, in here while he didn't decapitate Anatoly. He's definitely, you know, taking the taking the advantages of that reputation. Yeah. And, you know, I playing off the, the death code, you were were pretty specific. I believe it was last episode in pointing out when that when one of the Russian criminals was holding Claire, he specifically said, if you if you don't let her go, that's the last time you'll use that hand or something like that. We get to see him here again being super specific about the way that he is going to harm the person that he's interrogating, because what does he say? If you don't stop, that'll be your good hand from now on or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something something along those lines. Yeah. So it, it is a continuation of that thread of where he's a lot more conscious of the damage that he's doing. Although one step forward, I believe two steps back when he ends that scene by literally kicking Blake in the head and leaving that <laughs> blood streak on the wall. <laughs> well, and that was after what kicking him and snapping his leg, right? Right. <laughs> So Matt's learning, but he's got, he's, you know, he's going to stumble along the way. I think there's, I think there's 13 episodes and we're in episode five. It's baby steps. <laughs> we, we, we need to give a grade by the end of how Matt does and his no death rule. You know, so this next scene, I think is another one of those like quick snippets, um, in terms of, and not that there's not much there, but just this quick snippet, because I know in my notes, basically all caps, I just wrote down another date <laughs> where, cause it's that Vanessa and Fist now together again in, in a date setting, which is, I think how we spent the majority of the time of the episode, last episode with them together. And I think I was very clear last episode, how uncomfortable I was with a lot of the Fisk dating scenes. Like I didn't like it. And and like you said, we get a, a majority of the dating scenes here in this episode. And I will say, I think Fisk's awkwardness worked a lot better for me this episode than it did last episode. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that feel free to push back on this if this is the wrong read. But I felt like in the last episode, a lot of the awkwardness stemmed from just like it was outward of how uncomfortable he was with Vanessa. But in this one, I felt like the awkwardness was more revealing of himself because he was very open about his vulnerabilities, about not enjoying being questioned or not being out in public. And it just felt more illuminating to me than it did last time. Yeah, I'd have to agree because this is this short scene right here is where you get that sequence of I don't like being out in public. I don't like being questioned, but I will always be honest with you. And he was very specific. I'll be honest, always be honest with you. Um, and, and you just, you know, Fisk, you can't trust him, uh, or at least we know we shouldn't maybe. 
and, and so I found that interesting. Like that's the information. Uh, and also it could be, I mean, you can't, we keep mentioning how when we see Fisk, we see him with Vanessa, it's always his being vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? He's this man of power. He's being vulnerable. The way their date ended, you can't get much more vulnerable than that. Right. You know, I mean, you're, you're outed as a dangerous man by some Russian mob guy <laughs> crashing your date. And half the restaurant gets up and turns out to be your bodyguard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's there's no turning back from that. Right. So after their date scene, we are joined again with Vladimir, who is dressing up Anatoly's body, wiping away the blood. And we see Turk arrive, uh, sharing that he has information about who the SUV belonged to that was used to kill Anatoly. Right. And I think at the end of this, uh, there was a line in here that I felt was important um, where he he says he's I think it's the scene. Correct me if I'm wrong, where he says we're going to honor you with the blood of war. Yes, that is this. Okay, Yeah, that's this one. That's where he's he's basically, like I said, cleaning up the body, uh, tending to it. And he and he kind of whispers that. Um, and you can tell, like, you already got a sense that Vladimir wasn't all there in the head from the previous episode. And then here, even some of the stuff Sergei's getting in terms of commands, you kind of get a feeling like he's not, he's not full agreement. He doesn't think this is a good idea, but he does it anyways. Um, and he's not quite sure if I take it because that's Vladimir, my boss, or that's Vladimir. So I'm afraid I'm just going to do what he says. Um, you know, but you get a little bit about, I, I think of that interaction, a sense of how disturbed of a person Vladimir is. Oh, right. I mean, immediately you just read how unhinged he is with, I mean, because like you said, with, with Sergey, who has this, this hesitation to follow the orders of gathering all the men, getting all the grenades and preparing for war. And the moment that Vladimir's question, he immediately outbursts by saying now in Russian, like, he he is completely off the deep end at this point. Yes, and he offers up what tells Turk uh, one million for um, for Fisk actually. Yeah, yeah, because this is the scene where Turk tells Vladimir that uh, the information about the the SUV, right? And so here's where Vladimir. Uh, makes the I don't want to say makes the leap. I mean it's a logical conclusion on Vladimir's part that Daredevil and Fisk are working together. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean because we 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 as the audience know that isn't the case, but they Turk was very he didn't have all the answers because he was like I don't know just some bald white dude that that's who I know, and then we get to watch Vladimir put those connections together. Yeah, and we know from the previous episode when. Wesley tells uh, Fisk, hey, this is going to cause a war, and Fisk mm-hmm. says, I'm counting on it. So after that meeting with Turk, we do find ourselves back again at Mrs. Cardina's apartment. Foggy is doing some final work on the kitchen sink and is able to get the water running. Obviously, Mrs. Cardina is very happy and offers to to cook them dinner, and Foggy and Karen uh, partake. Right, and, and basically, this kind of goes off that... St- um, I don't want to say storyline, but the direction that I feel like they're pushing that are two characters, because uh, it turns into a date. Uh, or actually, in my notes, it says date dot 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 ish. Uh, <laughs> you know, because in some ways it's a date, in some ways it's not. But, uh, you know, 
Meanwhile, uh, Matt is has Claire at his apartment, and they're um, going through the phone he confiscated. I don't know if confiscated is the right word. Stole <laughs> from Detective Blake after kicking him in the face. Uh, and they get, I believe, four addresses, and one of them Matt recognizes. Right. And I, I like how... Uh, Claire's the one digging through the cell phone and and is relaying this information to Matt. It kind of solidifies that man in the chair relationship that we were talking about earlier. And I thought that was nice to to kind of see them working together like that. Well, and clearly this is what she signed up for now. Yeah, she feels a lot more comfortable with this up until the point she realizes that he got it off a cop because she does have that funny line where she's like, "Okay, when I said go to the cops, I didn't mean this." <laughs> yeah, well, and he just well. He tries to justify it. Let me put it that way. Um, and and say, well, th- what did he say? He tells her the cop did something and I don't remember what it was. I believe he, he talks about how he. Oh, it, was, it yeah. How he got shot. Yeah. Well, he quickly tries to justify it with telling her this cop shot somebody and immediately she accepted it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, I, it, it really starts to show where Claire is starting to fall. A moral compass of like what we said she's willing to buy into. Um, and mm-hmm. to say, okay, you're bad. Go get him, tiger. Well, I guess that's a Spider-Man reference. Go get him, <laughs> devil. It just doesn't sound the same. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're, we're clearly seeing that, that, that moral line that she's drawn. She's okay with this, but I do find it interesting. We see her again, kind of push back on, okay, what's your overall plan? What are you going to do? And whenever he doesn't have a definite answer, I believe she says something to the line of you're going to find yourself back in a dumpster again. Yeah, I think so. But also this is pretty much this is where the relationship ended. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because she said, I can't allow myself to fall in love with somebody. She didn't say don't go down this path, but essentially go down this road because he has his line of what I'm going to do, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, so be it. Uh, Essentially was his, you know, attitude or sentiment towards it. You know, so it was a very short-lived uh, relationship, and it, we well, talk- at least romantically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they very quickly see why it couldn't work, despite how they obviously feel for each other, which I think makes that beginning scene feel a little bit more heavier. Whenever she's pressing to be like, "Hey, what do you actually see?" and we see, you know, that world on fire view that he has. I like that the first time that we're seeing that it's we're seeing Claire because we know how he feels, but we also know his his line of work and his obligations and what he can do. And he can never have that fully realized picture with Claire, even though that's what he wants in this moment. Right. Right. And I know, you know, again, I guess the theme of this episode has been me trying to make reaches for MCU connections. I I admit that this isn't one, but I did find it funny to hear Matt say whatever it takes after we got so many trailers of the whatever it takes line for in-game. Well, you know what? I I like that you bring that up because while it's, well, I yeah, okay, it's a stretch or, or whatever. Um, but notice the difference in his whatever it takes and what that implies versus the in-game whatever it takes and what that implies. Like, you don't get the sense of that... I don't know, maybe maybe people did and I just didn't. But you don't get the extent, the the sense that the Avengers are just going to go throw morals out the window completely if necessary. Um, and at least up to this point, yeah, Matt slash Daredevil still is, has toyed with that. And as far as I'm concerned, I think still willing to do that. 
And I think you're you're definitely spot on because here, whatever it takes for Matt definitely has an air of self-serving, like, you know, ends justify the mean. Whereas in Avengers Endgame, whatever it takes is more about the sacrifice, all the different sacrifices that they were going to have to make was was. Well, it serves it serves an end outside of themselves. Yes. Thank you. So after the the romance stops with Claire and Matt, we find ourselves back with Vanessa and Fisk as they're kind of detailing Vanessa's past dating experiences. Uh, they revisit the feeling of Fisk feeling alone, and Vanessa's really able to pull out a lot more personal information from him. Right. I feel like, for me, just looking at my notes, the meat of this episode came out of those that opening sequence, you know, at least where I got the most no turn down on this sequence right here, this part or this portion of the day, mm-hmm. as much as we've mentioned fist being vulnerable, uh, I think you just said it great. Like she really pulled out a lot more information out of him, even if it was subtly done. Oh, very much so. I mean, specifically the cufflinks, like we picked up on it in the previous episodes. And I mean, she flat out asks him about the cufflinks. I think she says something like, are those the only ones you own? And we get to hear that they're his father's and that they wear him every day because he lost his father at a young age. Yes, we get a link to his past. Um, You know, he mentions that his father passed away uh, when he was a young boy. Um, He wears them, like you said, every day. We know from the previous episode that he was sent away when he was a young boy. So we can kind of start to or away from the city and had to come back. So we can kind of start putting back, uh, putting that past together. Um, Also, out of Wesley, we talked about and we've already brought it up once in this episode, the intimate relationship they have in terms of friendships. Uh, he he mentions that, uh, you know, as well, like Wesley, how Wesley is considered a friend. Mm-hmm. And I think Vanessa even has some kind of line to the effect of, oh, you have those. Um, you know. And what, what I liked about the if I'm not mistaken, I think the way they kind of lead into that conversation about Wesley is I think she makes a comment on the wine and Fisk reveals that it was a recommendation of Wesley's kind of what we're talking about an evolution from his awkwardness from last episode to this episode. We see him a lot more comfortable with taking that joke because I think she she kind of makes a, a, a soft jab. Nothing that I can remember specifically, but he's a lot more comfortable with it this time around. Yes. Which I, yes. I think is a cool way to show his progression with the date. Well, and we also get here where he talks about his view uh, or what he wants for the city, how he wants to improve the city. Um, and you get that since we just come off of Matt uh, saying, you know, whatever it takes, you get this sense of Fisk has this whatever it takes mentality as well to improve his city. Uh, so I, I like how they paired those two scenes together um, and paired them together to kind of show that, hey, these are the same two people in terms of wanting to improve the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're do- like I said, it was it was interesting last episode how we're getting to reveal so much about Fisk by being on a date and then showing the way that it's functioning forward with Fisk and Vanessa, but following through for Matt and Claire. It's it's a great way to kind of draw parallels between our antagonist and our protagonist. Right. And no, just to, to kind of talk about what you're saying about his vision for the city. I mean, it, I don't know if you got this read but for me like i honestly kind of believe fisk when he says that he's done things that he's not proud of but that trust that he has in saying like i'm gonna do it again because this is what i want i thought that was really nice to see 
this is the the shifting point for Vanessa because obviously trust is something that she places high value in. Right. Well, he asked the question. Like you can tell that he's gotten comfortable enough to where he asked the question, you know, what kind of gun do you have in your purse? Mm-hmm. And he kind of, in a weird way also, reeled her in uh, just as much as he, you know, she got to fish out a lot of information. Um, he got her to let her guard down a little bit more. I brought a gun to a dinner date. I know you're a dangerous man. And I really liked that exchange uh, here. You know, it showed something about him um, that he knew she had a gun. Uh, whether how he knew, you know, to me is beside the point, the fact that he he knew that going in. And when she hands over the gun, you know, as a symbol of as long as you're with me, you're safe. This really starts to put into motion the remainder of the episode, which was is the war between them and the Russians. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the, the war has definitely been set in motion, uh, you know, because the very next scene we get Sergei arriving in Vladimir's office to inform them that they've located Fisk. And uh, there's not too much to that scene where right after that, we do get back to Karen and Foggy's date where Foggy is recounting his college life with Matt. Right. And here's where I, I found I, I have, enough, again, my thread of I feel like they're pushing Foggy and Karen, right, to become something. And she asked, they, they started to open up. She asked about the ex. In fact, she even calls her, the uh, you know, uh, that meat grinder. Is that is that what you called her? A meat or, grinder and a pencil skirt. Yes, a meat grinder and a pencil skirt, uh, um, you know, and. And I don't even have, I didn't even write down the line right away, but I found it interesting. Like Foggy, if I if I'm thinking this through as someone who is like you're interested in this person and you're trying to date them, like he made an unbelievable mistake. He shifted the conversation to Matt. Like I wrote, it's like why would you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, because um, at that point is where Karen started asking more questions about Matt. Um, but it, I mean, if I'm taking this as kind of a logical. Yeah, I mean, I know it's written, but if I'm going to assume human motivations and logic and reason, she's interested. Mm-hmm. You know, she's asking about the ex. It's the two of them. And, you know, it's dinner. And it's like, dude, crucial mistake. Why would you shift the attention to, and, to Matt? And I think the thing that's so hard about this, too, is we're seeing Foggy kind of like build up this idea of Matt being a womanizer. But it's kind of hard to like hear this perception that Foggy has of him after we just got through seeing the scene of Matt having to call off the budding relationship that he was starting with Claire because of who he is. And it, I don't know. It was just, it was just a bummer all around. Yeah. Um, and this is the scene where I think we should get this, that awkward, for me, it was awkward. Oh yeah. Uh, where we get the, where Karen asked Foggy, you know, um, can you touch my face? And, and she even offers up, I'll let, you know, you do me, then I do you kind of trade off because she wants to see in it just seems weird to be it's like very weird you know i mean again go back to logic and reason assuming that if i'm foggy and she wants me to touch her face so she can know what it's like for my best friend and partner to do the same it just doesn't like i think it has problems just down to the writing like it doesn't they're trying to obviously push foggy and claire i'm sorry they're trying to push foggy and karen into this relationship 
But at the same time, they're making the subject of their conversation about Matt. And it's just it, it's kind of at odds with each other. And I, I think it, it, it really is just kind of clumsy writing. It is. It is. It just doesn't. I don't know. There's just something about it that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could you could find or they probably think could have found a better way. I'm going to use this phrase. They could have found a better way to put Foggy in the friend zone, you know, which is clearly what they're trying to do. Yeah. I can't believe I used that phrase because I think it's stupid. It doesn't (laughs) actually exist. But for our purposes, uh, that's not a real thing. Anyways, um, uh, I don't know. Hit, Hit us up on Twitter. Tell me, is the friend zone a real thing? But like, I don't. It just seems so weird. There's better ways to to kind of navigate that relationship, you know, in terms of a story. I'll be completely honest, as I haven't come across within this episode so far, this is, I think, has been my least favorite episode. And for as much praise as we've given them for being economical and the smart choices that they've been making, we're seeing how they kind of just wrote themselves into a corner where they clearly had intentions of what they wanted overall, but the scene that they're writing just doesn't fit whatsoever. Yeah, it feels like they had an idea of what they wanted to do. Um, And as they were writing and planning they were naturally going in another direction rather than allowing that to to naturally happen. They just stuck to their original plan and, and it just made it for a very awkward moment. Yeah, very much so. After that, we are finding ourselves back into another Russian hideout where one of Madame Gal's runners arrives. Uh, Shortly after, Daredevil arrives and attacks the guard. Uh, Meanwhile, as the Russians are gearing up inside, Gal's man infiltrates the base and sets off an explosion that takes out almost everyone. I found it interesting, like the gal's use of someone as a suicide bomber. And honestly, the big thing, you know, to keep pulling this thread through, uh, my note, uh, still working on the whole no killing thing. Because uh, when Daredevil Matt knows, recognizes it, the first things he does is grabs the guy at the door and uses him as a human shield. Right. I I thought that was kind of unintentionally funny. Just following this, this thread of the no kill uh, rule. But, I mean, we've seen Natasha do it in Civil War, so okay, <laughs> there is precedent for the Avengers okay. doing this. I guess I'll give a pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> the Black Widow pass. <laughs> I mean, she does have red in her ledger, so maybe right. it's not the best. <laughs> no, well, you know what? I mean, I'm, I, I know exactly what scene you're talking about uh, with, the, with the grenade going off at the beginning of Civil War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah. So, yeah, she used a human shield, too. Okay. Yeah. There's precedent for it. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I think Civil War came out after <laughs> this did, but any. <laughs> oh, that's actually a good point. I got my timelines wrong. But yeah, you know, as, but as far as I, I think we, we haven't fully answered that question yet. No. So as the explosion set off, we are returned back to Foggy and Karen where they're going for the awkward face-touching thing. The explosion's close enough that it catches them off guard and does severe damage to the apartment as well as them. Right. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this quick sequence was how quick Foggy jumped to action and ran outside. Mm -hmm. Didn't even hesitate. Like He made sure people were fine inside and then just immediately ran off. Oh yeah, to go to go look and help, uh, and just you know reemphasizing that uh, he loves the city, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's it for them. I think that's where this episode leaves them because from right there we go back to Vanessa and Fisk. Uh, yeah, back to the I will tape. say this though: 
Foggy and Karen got to pick better date sites. Because the last time that they were on their their one-on-one date, it was where the water tower scene was going on. And this time, they're right next to the explosion. They have an uncanny knack for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe that, that's that's why. That's, that's why the writers decided this isn't going to work. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a neat writing trick. If it's not working, just have an explosion off screen. <laughs> now, in, so I mentioned we go back to the date, right? One of the things I found fascinating is the title, World on Fire, right? And we got to see in the beginning Daredevil seeing the world from on fire and essentially from a very safe place, you know, literally in the sense of they're at a distance and they're watching the city burn. Uh, we also had Vanessa accept Fisk as a place mm-hmm. of safety, you know, and they're sitting there watching the city or the world in a, in a weird way, burn. Yeah. I mean, the way that they frame this is like a proving ground for Vanessa. You know, we get to see that she is completely bought into what Fisk is selling. And I mean, I mean, the way he does it is that obviously she's horrified by the destruction that's going on with the various different explosions. But the moment that he details, hey, you remember the story of those guys that took the the boy's father and beat them in front of him? Now they'll never do that again. And she says, good. Like we we see that moment where she's like, okay, even even if the means at which he is going about it are ruthless, she is bought into the vision that he wants for Hell's Kitchen. Is this a misleading truth? I mean, because yes, that's who did it, and yes, that's who you know um, Fisk is taking out, but that's not necessarily why he's doing this. Oh no! I mean, at least I don't think it is. It, well, yeah, it's I mean, not a so, hundred. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just gonna say I'm I'm trying to remember, and and I don't I don't remember this that being exactly why. Well, I mean, clearly that's the lie that he feeds her that 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 these were the men that were responsible for this, so I took care of them. But I mean, we know that he's just trying to get the Russians out of the picture because they have proved to be too unpredictable. So he's removing them from the equation. Right. And I guess that's part of my question of like, was taking the kid and having that the unpredictable part? You know what I mean? Like, was that a side business uh, of their whole organization? And so because you're doing something on the side, you're unpredictable? Mm-hmm. Or is it your Vladimir and Anatoly and have an unpredictable personality? Like, I don't know if that is actually clear to me. Um, and maybe it is, maybe they did a good job of showing that and I just completely missed it. Um, but it's just interesting because we had this exchange of, I'm going to always be honest with you, but that line wasn't a hundred percent honesty. He struggles with being open when he talks about like, oh, you know, I don't like being in public or something like that. Cause he, he stammers, but anything that has to do with the business he's running, he can clearly tell a lie and not be a hundred percent truthful with it. Right now at the end of the scene, there was a weird exchange where he gave the guy an envelope. Um, and what the only thing that made it weird for me is the, the acting choice, all of it, the audio cue, everything. There's a hesitation because he reaches in his pocket, same one where the 22 is. And they kind of, it's like, they want you to think he's about to pull a 22 out and shoot him. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure why they wanted us to feel that because, yes, we've mentioned Fisk can be volatile, right? Mm-hmm. But do we really believe he's going to pull the 22 out and shoot the guy in front of Vanessa? No. 
and I it's it's a weird. I marked down how it was kind of weird too because the way the camera kind of lingers on that guy, like he's got this weird smile on his face. Um, I don't know. The over, overall, the whole thing was weird. I don't know why they would want to frame that because the guy really didn't do anything. Yeah, it's it's I don't know. Yeah, because like and I and and I'm I'm fine with the choice of like taking care of the guy, giving him an envelope, like it fits the the persona and the character that they're trying to build. But that hesitation to make us think that that might be a possibility. I know that might be a possibility, mm-hmm. right? But I just don't think it's going to be a possibility with Vanessa right in front of him. Yeah, that was a weird choice. So as the date ends, we find ourselves back with Matt as he retains consciousness amid the fiery destruction. Uh, he gets back up to his feet and uses his hearing to discover that Sergey and Vladimir are alive. Meanwhile, Turk is counting the money that Wesley has paid off to him while Wesley explains his plan to Turk. Yeah, I liked that exchange, mainly because you can see Turk was trying to fish for that million dollars <laughs> out of Wesley. And the Wesley just kind of, yeah, you know, it. we, we can do this with help from our friends. Um, and, and Wesley wasn't taking it. Because <laughs> I think specifically after he fishes that, that for that one million, Wesley goes, well, you're alive. So clearly you made the right choices. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. I got to say, I I was completely the other way. I think maybe by the end of this episode, this is where I was really starting to kind of have those feelings of like, okay, I I don't think I was a fan of this one. To me, this scene just felt very self-serving. Just the way that Wesley's explaining to Turk, like, hey, this is why we did it. Um, And Turk has that line of like, oh, man, I got mad respect for a smart move. Like, there was no mystery to the fact that Turk was operating under Fisk and Wesley's instructions. So it just, it felt weird to me to have this this ending scene of it being explained to us point blank again. Yeah, it's it's the pinball machine. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need Wesley to go get the gun. We've made that connection. Um, but thank you for spelling it out. <laughs> just in case you weren't paying attention, here it is again. <laughs> but yeah. So at this point, uh, Daredevil has caught up to Vladimir. Uh, they we get a quick fight between the two of them, and then the police show up. I think one of the things that I found interesting about this scene is that we've seen so many different times where Matt's able to use his super hearing ability and realize that people are approaching and quickly get out of the way. Right before the police show up, we we get to hear him deliver the line, "This one's for Claire," and he kind of like reels back to deliver the final punch, and then he gets caught off guard by the cops. I just thought it was a really insightful scene to see how motivated by anger Matt is at this point that he wasn't able to rely on his super hearing to get out of danger. Oh, that's a good catch. What I got out of there is not that he missed it with a super hearing, but I mean, I think this feeds into it is he was again about to let the devil out. Yeah. You just gave up Claire's name. So what's the plan? You're going to kill him? That's a very good point. Yeah. I, I remember thinking, man, that feels kind of too much to give up that name so i didn't make this thought until now yeah i guess what is his plan he can't just leave that hanging no i mean you want to talk about putting someone in danger that's i mean it's not just here's russian mob gang whatever that's vladimir yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) i mean and we've we've seen vladimir rip a two ribs out of a dead body You know, that's not the guy you want to give a name to. Definitely not, especially when he thinks you decapitated his brother. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like I said, I kind of think I was disappointed with this episode overall. We we talked about it um, an episode or two ago, where this this Netflix series kind of has that A B cadence, where one episode starts to open up these plot lines, and then the next one kind of concludes it. 
this definitely felt like that A side of the plot lines, mainly because it honestly just felt like a lot of, and then this happened, and then this happened, and there wasn't a lot of huge choices being made yeah. from my first my perspective. No, and I get that. And I think the upside of this is um, more character development and information on Fisk, uh, especially the backstory The as we wanted to tr- follow the cufflinks through mm-hmm. the Claire and Matt relationship, seeing where that's going uh, and kind of reinforcing Matt's juggling of letting the devil out or not mm-hmm. uh, and what is his end game. Um, but otherwise, as an episode... Yeah, I. You know what? I I think I mentioned off podcast to you. I had not watched the next one yet, um, and I think that says a lot. Whereas in the previous ones, as soon as it was over, like I let it play, and and watched a little bit of the next one. Yeah. Uh, and this one I didn't. You know, it's funny because um, I I can't remember if I mentioned it or not. I I'm basically to the point where I watch these episodes three times before we record. And immediately after that first watch, I texted you and I was like, it's getting really hard not to watch the next one. And in the moment, I was kind of like, yeah, 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 I'm ready for more. I'm ready for more. And I had like a positive feel. But as I took the time to kind of go back and rewatch it two more times, you're really starting to see where it benefits from being able to, to binge it versus what we're doing in a week to week basis. And I think that's something that we should kind of keep a frame of mind on as we're going through this to see how whenever the Disney Plus shows come out, how they handle that sort of storytelling when we do have to go back to waiting week to week. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. And because I, I like I know what happens next, right? Like we're going to pick right up where Daredevil has the cops on him, right? And so it, it, it's might as well not mm-hmm. even be a break and have credits, uh, I mean, you could you could edit those out, mm-hmm. smash them together, and it's like as if it's one continuous thing. Um, and so in that way, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're doing a first watch, I can see that feeling of, oh, man, what's going to happen next? But that I think that's more of how that last scene ended and wanted to see how Daredevil gets out of this than the overall episode mm-hmm. pushing you into the next scene. Yeah. Or uh, in the next episode. But yeah, that is uh, that is World on Fire. Um, anything to add before we move on to our question of the week? No, I think we just said it. I think we got it. Yeah. As we've been doing for six episodes, we want to give you an opportunity to chime in with this question. Jude, obviously the Marvel movies are pretty famous for their in-tag scenes. Which of the in-tag scenes would you say is your favorite? And honestly, I'm kind of curious to see if we land on the same one because I think think that might end up being the case okay i have i have multiple um i have three okay i have <laughs> i like i like how with the i think every time we've done this way hey which one is the one and you and i each week come with three answers well okay i have a list that goes out to seven oh. um but i'm gonna i'm gonna admit my wife took my notes and i have i have number one and then she wrote down number two Talk about how awesome wife is. And number three, <laughs> address growing love for Francis Fluffers, uh, which is our dog. Um, the mascot. Yeah. So I, now that he's official mascot, I guess, then, then those those have been accomplished. Um, and so my official, you know what? My official two is number four on this list. Uh, number one, Iron Man, Nick Fury. I mean, that's classic. 
um, how how could that not be a uh, top one? Right, right. I, and I, so I assume that's yours. No, <laughs> <laughs> but I will. I will say I didn't. I wanted to see. Do you f- still remember that moment seeing it in the theaters? Yes, I do. And and okay, so I was. It had been out in the theaters a little bit because uh, that came out late spring. Uh, God, I can't remember, and I should have looked up the actual date. That came out. I'll look it up. Okay. I want to say it's May. Yeah, it came out late spring because uh, my wife and I were in town, and she went to go watch a movie. <laughs> I'm laughing. She went with my my sister to go see a movie, um, which was Sex in the City. <laughs> And it was just so scandalized or sex in the city or sex in the city too, whichever it was. It was so scandalized that I saw that with your little sister. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know this. Yeah. Well, I was in a theater over with, um, best friend, Aaron and my brother (laughs) watching Iron Man. And later when Iron Man came out on DVD and I showed Amity and she thought it was one great movie. She's like, and I saw that other one instead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I looked it up May 2nd, 2008. Yeah. yeah. So we, we were, yeah, we had to be in for the summer. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was probably late May, early June when we saw that. Yeah. I, I mean, I still remember being in the theater and waiting and honestly, I know Marvel isn't the first to do in tag scenes, but they're off, often popularly credited as the reason people stay now. I don't know what it was that prompted me to stay, but because like I said, I, up until then, I really wasn't into comics. I wasn't even that excited about the Iron Man trailer. I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast, um, but I just, I don't know. There was something in that moment that it clicked for me. Like, even though I had the vaguest idea of who Nick Fury was, just seeing him walk in on screen and, and talk about how he's part of the larger universe. Like, I just remember being in that seat and being so excited and hearing the people around me start clapping. I would not have known to stay mm-hmm. if I wasn't with... Um brother and Aaron who had seen it before and knew at yeah. the time, you know, said, no, we got to stay to the end. So, uh, I'm going to go with mine. And I, I, I do like, even though they're different, um, mine would be in far from home, the reveal of J Jonah Jameson and the reveal of Peter Parker's identity. Really? Okay. Which there is, I know there's probably recency bias with that, but I don't know. I was just so completely caught off guard with the fact that, even though the MCU has always been so loose with secret identities, Peter Parker's identity has always been so vital to the character and to just see it completely ripped off. I don't know. I thought it was a really, really bold move. And we've already seen how they've, they've changed up the way they've handled Spider-Man as we talked about with his relationship to Tony Stark versus the, the uh, uncle Ben. I, I thought it was cool that they're just out in the open with his identity now. And I can't wait to see the effects of that in the next movie. Yes, I'm excited about that. And we've mentioned a few times part of this doing Daredevil is the possibility of him showing up as his lawyer. Um, don't know if that's going to happen or if it does, if it would actually be Charlie Cox. I'll be honest I'd, and say I'll be disappointed if they recast. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's but that end scene is what's kind of fueling a lot of the rumors yeah. that that's going to happen. And, and not to mention um, J. Jonah Jameson. We, he's back. Oh, I was with my kids and I threw my hands up in the air and just, yes, because, and they had no idea, you know, who Jane Jonah Jameson was, <laughs> um, you know, in, in terms of that particular actor, J.K. Simmons. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I was thrilled. Now, I'll tell you, the others I wrote down were Avengers Thanos, 
Civil War, Spider-Man and Aunt May, um, and this is actually no particular order, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, the Captain America one on Patience, which that is very close to being the best one. I I just loved that they were bold enough to do that bit. Um, And the Thor Ragnarok with the Grandmaster, where he's like, yay us. You know, it's a tie. <laughs> it's a, yeah, like like those those are my favorites. Um, and dishonorable mention, uh, I'd say most disappointing was the Doctor Strange tags. Doctor Strange was the tease for Ragnarok, right? Right, and and what I was disappointed with that was in watching Ragnarok, expected to see Doctor Strange more, mm-hmm. right? Like I got excited to have Doctor, see to see more of Doctor Strange and to see that interaction. And it was, you know, and we'll talk about it, I guess, when we do this movie, but it was so little screen time to my expectations. Yeah. That that was, that in tag became disappointing. And even the other one with Mordo or Mordu, um, where he was like too many sorcerers. Mm-hmm. It, like we haven't, even at the time, knowing the timeline of movies that are coming out and what they're building towards. Like I was like, they're not going to be able to pay this off for a long time. And so that was, so those two were probably the most disappointing for that reason. That's a really interesting take. Cause I, I really do like the Mordo scene, but I guess at the time I didn't really articulate, Oh yeah, this is going to be a while before they paid off. And knowing what we know about Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, I don't even know how well it's going to be paid off there. Um, but yeah, yeah. Everything I'm hearing about that, I don't think it's going to be paid off there mm-hmm. either. And that's it, as good as they've done with these um, in credit scenes. It almost feels like a uh, a waste. Yeah. So I'm gonna go ahead and list the other two that I have. The other in tag scenes I really liked was at the end of Infinity War when Nick Fury is being dematerialized from the snap. Uh, I just thought it was. It was. It's almost like a, a great one-two punch. Obviously, we just saw the Avengers lose. Uh, the whole half the world or half the universe got snapped, and Fury, who's always kind of been this embodiment of like, you know, man with a plan. Like, you know, we always turn to Nick Fury. He's got things under control, and he's being dematerialized as well. I just thought it was such a powerful scene and a great way to tease Captain Marvel. There was some mixed feelings on that one. You know, because you you have this impression of Nick Fury and you're wondering what's going to happen. By this point, a good friend of mine and I would get, you know, would started trying to guess what end credit scenes would be. And so we had a pretty good idea Captain Marvel would be part of this end credit scene. And so to have that gut punch of Fury being gone and the excitement of Captain Marvel, you know, they didn't just end the roller coaster of Infinity War (laughs) <laughs> you know, there, they, they carried it through. Oh yeah. And plus knowing what we now know between the relationship between Fury and, and, and Carol Danvers, it's, it kind of strengthens that scene with rewatches now. It does. And uh, my third pick would be the Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch tease at the end of Winter Soldier. Even though I think that's just because it's Winter Soldier. I know I felt guilty. It might honestly be the reason why it's number three, uh, <laughs> not number two. Um, even though the direction that they ended up going with the characters is so vastly different than what they teased, I was just genuinely excited about seeing those two become, uh, I don't know if villains is the right word, but problems for the Avengers in the next movie. And it was just really creepy to see Scarlet Witch doing that thing with that object she was playing. Right, where she basically just cut those, what, 
I, they look like boxes. They just cut them in half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, to, to kind of follow your lead, dishonorable mention, I believe it's Captain America, the, the first Avenger. All it was is really like a teaser for the Avengers. And I think we'd already seen it online. I remember kind of being disappointed at that. Yeah. And that's one of the ones. And I go back and forth on that. Like part of me is when they just take a scene from a movie, kind of like with Ant-Man, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, hey, I know a guy versus something they shot extra. The ones that I mentioned are clearly ones they shot extra. Yeah. You know, um, and my the first one I mentioned versus dishonorable mention, so to speak, uh, was something they just lifted from the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and yeah, none of those made my list. Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with it kind of ruins the illusion where, you know, these are quote unquote real time. If you're doing rewatches and, and marathons and you get excited for the intact scene, it's just showing you something you're already going to see in the next one. It just kind of takes the air out of the momentum. It does. It does. All right. So if you'd like to chime in on this episode, whether it be World on Fire or our question of the week, you can find us on Twitter at MCU Need to Know, or you can tag us on Instagram at MCU Need to Know. Or if long form is your thing, you can email us at know at gmail.com. And if you want to help out the podcast, uh, we really appreciate you to subscribe, download, and leave a review if you have time on Apple Podcasts or wherever. I hear Francis, the mascot in the background, or wherever you get your podcast. And please share with a friend. Yes, that will do wonders. Uh, also, I want to give a special thanks to Nick Sandy for the, the performance of our theme song. This is our sixth episode, and I feel really guilty for just now getting to it but i was so happy that he created that for us yes thank you nick uh i think it's been mentioned in the show notes but yes thank you very much it's really good theme music thank you thank you thank you and uh yeah mcuneedtoknow.com if you want to find this episode or previous episodes until next week thank you guys for listening But yeah, that'll do it for this week's episode. So if you have any thoughts on World on Fire, Daredevil Season 1, Episode 5, or want to answer our question of the week, you can add us on Twitter at MCU, at MCU need to know dot, nope. I'm going to start over. Yeah, do that over. So that will do it for this week's episode. If you have any thoughts on World on Fire or want to chime in with our question of the week, you can find us on Twitter at MCU at MCU need to know why can I not say that? Jeez. <laughs> Intech. <laughs> One more time. All right. So if you have any thoughts or would nope. All right. So if you'd like to chime in on this episode, whether it be World on Fire or our question of the week, you can find us on Twitter at MCU need to know, or you can tag us on Instagram at MCU need to know. Or if long form is your thing, you can email us at know at gmail.com. And we'd really appreciate it uh, if you'd... Uh, damn. None of either one of us can do it.